Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm with a very talented designer, creative, called Melissa Jackson, who um, has been really crafting her skills or honing her skills for the last 20, 25 years. Um, and I was just discussing before we sat down that success is really a long-term thing. So welcome to the show, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Melissa, you started out studying textile design at RMIT University in the late 80s. Late 80s. Well, anyone who's, anyone even in the late 80s, I think is young. So um, why textile design, Melissa? Uh, I decided in about year 10 at school that I really wanted to do textile design. I actually, I love making things with my hands. Mm. Um, I'm also fortunate to come from a very creative family and my grandmother's, I guess, on both sides. You know, I'd always done patchwork and I'd always done, I don't know, just mm. stuff that, that they were doing, knitting, whatever. Um, so I guess it was something that was um, instilled in me from a very early age. And I liked the textile medium because I thought it was a bit more versatile, I guess, than fashion at the time. Mm. Although it's possible I made the wrong call given that all our textile mills here in Australia kind of... Uh, disintegrated. Disintegrated right at the time that I graduated. So <laughs> in hindsight... <laughs> so when you kind of... You have a plan and you think you're going to work in textile design and then it doesn't, there's nowhere to go. You decide to head to London. Well, I actually did a music degree in between at um, Melbourne Uni. Um, so I was a singer for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Another fabulous creative field. Not. Yes. <laughs> um, and then I was in London after that, which where I yeah, where I did a fashion degree at St Martin's with a knitwear major. So the, the knit work that I'd done at RMIT, I guess I picked up on, but really looking at knitwear for fashion as opposed to knitwear as a textile art form. And Central St Martins has really seen um, some of the most extraordinary fashion designers in the world uh, graduate, people like John Galliano, the late Alexander McQueen. Yep, Stella McCartney. Stella McCartney. I mean, it's really a who's who. So even the idea of getting into St Martins must have been quite daunting, I would have thought. Yeah, it was daunting and it wasn't something that I'd actually planned initially. So I had been backpacking um, actually around music halls um, with my partner at the time who was a singer um, and then sort of ended up in London and was kind of at crossroads as to coming back to Australia or back to Melbourne or staying on a little bit longer and working in London. Um, I had lucky to have a Scottish grandparent, so I had UK um, access in terms of visa and working and that kind of thing. So that was a bit of a bonus, I guess. And I just decided to look at a few colleges. Um, I had a friend there who was an architect who kind of steered me in the right direction as to mm -hmm. where to look. And he's like, look, just start at the top. <laughs> and did you go with a portfolio? <laughs> and I, and I, yeah, and I got my portfolio sent over because obviously I hadn't taken it backpacking with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, yeah, actually the, the interview was very daunting. It was like a panel of five St Martin's people, including their like academic coordinator and um, the design staff. Um, Sue Jenkins-Jones, who ended up being my tutor, I think was on the panel as well. Um, and I was in a weird place because they were sort of like, um, you're maybe not advanced enough 
to start halfway through, but you're too advanced to start in first year. So they were sort of trying to work out where where, where to put me. And I was really lucky because when I got the letter of offer, they said, you've been accepted into third year. So I actually only had to complete third year and then the honours year, which is sort mm-hmm. of a compulsory year mm-hmm. afterwards. Had it been, if I was saddling up for four years, I may not have... Um, Survive. Stuck it out, but I was like, two years, you know, it's going to go so quickly, yeah. and it and it went really quickly. So, how did you steer towards millinery, which is really what you're known for in Australia now? Your wonderful hats. Was it something that was you found over there, being well, surrounded with people like Stephen Jones and Philip Tracy? No, not really. I mean, the millinery really came accidentally in a sense that I had come back from London, having completed the St Martin's course, and again, I was at the crossroads. I was half inclined to go back and work in London. Although Sue, my lecturer there, was like, Melissa, you could come back to London and do an internship. You'll be picking up pins for Vivian Westwood. If you can go home and start a business and create a niche for yourselves, that's what you should do. Um, so I kind of took her advice, but not not really consciously, more that I thought, well, what else can I do? It was, an, it was sort of a September at the time. And I made some hats for friends. It was also the early 90s would have been pretty tough in London, I imagine. Yeah, it wasn't. Recession. Yeah, it wasn't a great time to be there (laughs) either. Um, But the good thing was when I was home, George's at the time had just reopened on Collins Street. Mm. And somebody suggested that I go and speak with Christine Barrow who was the buyer for George's Accessories. Um, and it's kind of a funny story, actually, because Christine looked at, the ha- looked at some hats that I had made, and I'd made these hats during a short course at St Martin's. Um, and she said, oh, look, they're interesting, but, you know, I don't have a budget at the moment, and I've already done my buy, and my Philip Tracys are arriving next week, etc., etc. So thanks, but no thanks. And then a week later, she called and she said, actually, about those Philip Tracys, they're stuck on the wharf. I can't get them out of customs, but I've got a fashion parade. Can you make me six hats? <laughs> and then those six hats were really received well, and she placed an order. And with that, I was like, okay, great. I've got an order. I don't have a, I don't really have a formal costing sheet. I don't have a label. I don't have a swing ticket. I don't have a hat box. <laughs> But you had the ideas. I had the ideas and all the rest just kind of followed organically, I guess. What, Melissa, do you think took people's imagination with those six hats? I think I was doing work that was very different to everything else on the market at the time. So my work is very sculptural and very minimal. So there wasn't a feather in sight. There wasn't a flower in sight. So I guess, you know, in the 80s when it was all about more is more, I was probably you know, by this stage, it was, what, 99. Um, you know, that whole minimalist movement had taken place in the in the 90s. But also, I was quite sort of Japanese origami almost in my aesthetic. And again, that was something that hadn't really been translated into hats. And again, maybe it's my textile background too. So I'm all about the fabric and the form and creating something just from the raw materials as opposed to adorning mm-hmm which, you know, many hats are just adorned. So they buy a base and they put, you know, a lot of stuff on it. So I was kind of the opposite. And I had raw edges. And whilst a few of the um, fashionistas here in Melbourne were like, oh, raw edges, oh, Mm. you know. (laughs) But but to me, you know, it was was also a time. It was finished, yeah. And also it was a time when deconstruction was, you know, a big movement in its own right. And it still is. And there was nothing to go with it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so for me, who liked that kind of aesthetic, I was like, well, I couldn't even buy a hat that would look good with anything I'm wearing, (laughs) so I'm going to need to make my own. (laughs) So how do you, I mean, what's the process to even get 
those six hats going in um, terms of how do you work? Well, those six hats, it was interesting because um, I did have a bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> I did have to be imaginative. The the hats that I had shown Christine initially, I'd blocked in London. So I had access to hat blocks through this short course. Of course, when I got home and she'd said, you know, I want one in lavender and one in chocolate and one in silver and whatever. The Obviously, my samples, so to speak, weren't in those colourways. But I didn't have the blocks either. So I actually used um, pots and pans and a few lampshades and things <laughs> that kind of, kind of mimicked. And um, the whole thing that was really funny now looking back is that I delivered the hats and I didn't see Christine at the time. And I went back in the evening for the show. And I think, you know, more than half the show had happened. And I was like, oh, my God, there's no hats. She hated them mm-hmm. because they did look quite different, I will admit, to the originals. And then, and when they actually, the hats did come out in sort of a finale section of racewear, you know, there was even a couple of oohs and ahs. And so it was quite apparent that people were happy to see them. And then Christine was like, oh, they weren't what I was expecting, but what a success. Come and see me tomorrow. (laughs) It is nice when you get that break because I imagine in the fashion industry in Melbourne or anywhere in Australia, it's pretty challenging to get that support. Yeah, well, look, I think, you know, Christine is somebody here in Melbourne who's been a champion of um, local talent, uh, local brands. I know essentially she imports as well, and that's her niche or her speciality. But she is supportive of local designers, and I'm very fortunate we've become great friends and, you know, in a sense, you know, a mentor to me, um, you know, long term, which is invaluable as well. So, Melissa, from going... Uh, from making a few hats for a parade to establishing your own business, starting up, you know, a shop in Gertrude Street, that's quite a big jump. Yeah, well, look, I, there's been a lot of challenges. Um, and I guess, yes, when I started in Gertrude Street, again, that was 2000. And look, Gertrude Street's changed a lot now. You would have been one of the first movers and shakers on yeah, that block. Yeah, I think there was Rose, uh, Rose Chong who came and welcomed me to the street because she's been there for a long time with her costume store. But, um, yeah, pretty much there was Rose and I, and there was actually a shoemaker further up. uh, Stephen Davies. Stephen Davies, yes. And there was a couple of antique uh, merchants who didn't survive or haven't survived, and, of course, there's still the guy making the pool tables and Mm. um, the violin maker around on Smith Street. So there were lots of artisans or niche businesses But, um, yeah, I did have the odd old client who said, well, I won't come to Gertrude Street. My Lamborghini might get scratched. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you did deliveries. I did do deliveries, yes. I made house calls. <laughs> when you're starting a business, you know, you've kind of got to do everything. <laughs> so how, do you, how does the process start? I mean, you only do a limited number of hats. It's very much about almost like building a building or taking a brief, like an architect would take a brief. How does the process work? Do they kind of give you a few ideas or what they're looking for? Uh, It changes from client to client. I would say generally, though, my clients are coming to me because they already like and appreciate what I do. So they already kind of trust that you will get it right. Um, Of course, occasionally there are times when things don't go exactly to plan because what they've imagined and what I've imagined they've imagined Hmm. (laughs) may not be 100% the same. Melissa, do you sketch things out before you make things and then give it to the client and say, this is what you're going to be receiving? Um, I 
I used to do sketches. Now, because I've got quite a lot of samples on hand, it's more that they might try two or three things on and they might like the brim from one but the crown of another but the ribbon on another or mm. something of that ilk or they might like the sculpture on one. So, and, and look, the big thing with millinery, and I say this all the time, is it's also about the scale and proportion. So because everyone's a different size, different shape, different haircut... Mm you know, even different glasses if they're wearing spectacles or if they're wearing sunglasses. Um, it's all about making those other elements work in with your design. <clears throat> it's the same with a house if you're living in the house or if you've got one child or three or whatever it might be. Um, so all those things come together. Sometimes a customer might come with a pair of shoes and she wants exactly the same colour of the shoe mm -hmm. um, or a handbag or the trim on a handbag. And you, um, Melissa, you generally work in straw. I generally work in straw. I used to work a lot in cinema, um, and that was that's a more transparent fibre. It's a very um, malleable fibre. It's um, woven it, banana plant or palm fibre. Is it almost transparent? Almost transparent, and it's a, like a, a, a much looser weave. It's a much looser weave. But when I was using that, I was doing lots of deconstructed pieces. Um, and then I had lots of, um, what will we call them, replicas made. <laughs> Flattery. So I kind of stopped. I stopped that technique and moved on. Um, and look, I'll probably go back and revisit it at some point because I did enjoy working with it. And you can do lots of layering of colours with it as well. Um, but I have really perfected my straw. And I think, yeah, even though, look, I do have a lot of other designers now inspired by my minimalist uh, sculptural styles, <laughs> um, I guess my work is still distinctive enough that people can still recognise the original. Yeah. And as someone said to me recently, don't worry, Melissa, the original is always the best. <laughs> it is a nice form of flattery, though, but I imagine it's irritating when you spend considerable time and effort developing something that's quite unique and it does take a long time to evolve and then you just see something that's just a rip-off. And you know you can go down the litigation route, but you, know, you don't get. I don't think you, you, don't, well, you don't really anywhere. get very far. Um, and look, it's it's a tricky area, but yeah, sometimes it can be annoying. And I know I've, I've spoken to other millinery colleagues about it. Is you might stumble on an idea and you sort of push that idea, but then you want to go back and revisit it. Let's say two years later or three mm. years later, but you don't really want to because by then all the copyists have kind of mm. um, destroyed it for you. Let's say. Um, Melissa, unlike London, which is essentially, you know, they, it's the population and also they have a culture of wearing hats, Australia doesn't particularly have a culture apart from uh, the race season. So is it difficult for you to even plan your year, given that it is quite seasonal and it's not something that is um, inbred in the fashion industry is millinery. Yeah, the seasonal nature is probably the hardest thing. So when do you start really feeling the pressure? Uh, usually August. two weeks before. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone comes in at the last minute. Uh, I mean, even this year, I think I got four orders three days before Derby. And because it is seasonal and it is your own business, you're the one staying up all night. My husband thinks I'm berserk, but... Yeah. If you don't do it, you know, you don't have your minions there to do it for you. And also you want to make sure that it's right. And as I said, a lot of what I'm doing, a lot of the decision making I'm doing, I might be making at the time I'm working, you know, working with the sculpture. So, yeah, logistics can be a little bit bit tricky, um, which is why most milliners have toothpicks in their eyes at the races. <laughs> 
But unfortunately, you know, it's weird. Melbourne or Australia, actually, in general, we should really be a hat-wearing nation given the sun. sun. Um, And even in the sort of um, sun hat space, there are very few, I would say, chic or stylish Sun hats. I mean, Helen Kaminsky obviously obviously is one who and she's still going. who's still going and done very well and sells worldwide um, with her sort of plaited raffia styles. But you know, it's it should. I mean, apart from you know, you go into the chemist and you buy a cheap hat, but I think you just wear it for the summer and then you chuck right. it out, um, which is a shame. But look, I think partly it's also because we drive everywhere. Most people drive everywhere, mm. whereas in the UK. And I guess in Europe in general, you're walking or you're on um, public transport. And whether it's winter or summer, you also need a winter hat because it's so damn cold. So is it slowly changing the situation in Australia or you think it's still a fair way to go? I think it's still a fair way to go. I mean, I think men are starting to wear more hats casually, interestingly enough. Um, Has it tempted you to... Go into the menswear market. Um, look, I've done a few. I've done a few men's hats, but but generally, you know, men don't want to pay for the work that goes into it. And obviously, with a lot of imports and things, you know, it's particularly from Asia. Um, there's a lot already around on the market um, for that for that area. But um, you know, there's also some cool brands. There's a brand called Brixton um, that do some sort of cool men's wear. Mm-hmm. So for the young guys, the hipsters, <laughs> Stephen, you know, that's no, what they're all into. That's what they're into. I'm a post hipster. <laughs> um, Melissa, how do you start the whole process? Is it just you have a couple of fittings with someone, talk through the ideas, and then it just evolves? And do you, is it like a tool where you'd have a few meetings with the client or you just, from day one, then there's a gap of two weeks, whatever there is, and then you just present? Look, it's really up to the client. Um, I did do a pretty wild um, peacock hat this season for a customer and she wanted something big and out there and, and loud and we were able to do that. For the cup? For the cup, Yes, I probably have a photo here somewhere. Um, And the only problem we had was just getting the balance right because obviously she wanted, you know, more feathers and more feathers and more feathers. So that was it as its base. So people who can't see the image, it's almost this organic-shaped green straw hat. Um, It almost kind of would sit nicely on the turf. (laughs) And then it's got this amazing uh, peacock feathers. But it's almost like a mouth in the crown. There's like yeah, almost it's almost li- like lips, in lips. fact. It's almost like a pair of Dali lips uh, set within the crown. You'd have to be fairly confident to wear these hats. Yeah, she, she was pretty confident. She wore it on Oaks Day. She did send me a photo of herself, which I'll just try to bring up now. So that's how it ended. You can see how it's got a lot more mm, plumage. <laughs> um, but yeah, as you know, Oaks Day was terrible weather. It rained and she texts me and she goes, I've got my hat on. I absolutely love it. But I did carry it to the track in a bag because yeah. I didn't want to ruin it before I got here. Because the other thing with your hats is they're not just to be worn. They're actually pieces of sculpture that you can actually display around a home. Yeah, well, this client was um, exactly that. She's like, oh, and I'm not even going to keep it in the hat box. I'm going to actually put it on my mantle or you know, find a place for it at home because I just love it so much and it is so sculptural. Um, So, look, yeah, every client is different. Um, With Heather, we had a couple of fittings just because we wanted to check that the balance was going to be right and comfortable. Um, But sometimes a fitting isn't required. And also it depends on the customer. A lot of customers don't have time. 
You know, I had a customer in Malvern this year and we did everything via email. She didn't even come to Fitzroy because she was, mm. you know, clearly too busy. too busy. So I sourced fabric, sent a photograph to her. Are you happy with this colour combination? You know, did a little tester, mm. sent her the picture. I mean, that's one thing where I guess technology is amazing now and you can work with anyone wherever they are, whether they're in the next door suburb or... You are know, you, overseas. Are you supplying or um, clients overseas? Um, I have a couple of clients in Dubai because racing's quite big in in Dubai. Um, I also had a couple of clients doing Ascot this year. Um, they're all Australians, mind you, but they're <laughs> they're living obviously away from home. Um, and I guess with with those clients, they already know my work, or they might have purchased something when they were living you know, in Melbourne. So you've already got a bit of a bit of a rapport. But yeah, look, it really just depends. I find Instagram actually has um, led to lots of new inquiries. Mm. Who would have thought? <laughs> what do you find the most pleasurable thing about what you're doing? Um, Is it seeing the hat on someone's head and wearing it at a special day? No. You know what? I really enjoy the making process, like nutting out the kind of the kind of um, final design, if you like. And I guess an example this year, um, I did a hat for Chica Keyboard from the big group, or she's actually a real housewife of Melbourne. I guess people know her from now. But um, she'd brought in a dress that was stunning, and I knew the designer of the dress, and I liked that particular designer. And I had an idea in my head, but, of course, I've got to convey that to her. And then we only had a limited amount of time to do it. Um, and... Yeah, it's it's the challenge of getting that idea onto your form, and and then um, I guess the the customer being happy with that expectation. And I guess look, Chica's someone who is visual as well, so she's more or less yes, I see what you're trying to do. I'll leave it to you. Um, but yeah, you just really want to hope that you get it get it right. But I love that actual making it on the stand, and. Do you get to a point, I mean, especially around the uh, cup season in Melbourne, uh, that you have to delegate or you tend to not do that? Um, look, uh, from time to time, I do have um, some students who will come in. This year I only had one, but she also worked in hospitality, so she was very limited in the times that she could come. And when when your orders come in so late, it's hard to employ people because you don't know how busy you're going to be and also for me it's tricky because a lot of the decision making I'm doing as you work as I work um and I'm just trying to find your photo of Chica's piece but that's a perfect example because I I knew exactly in my head what I wanted to achieve um but trying to actually if I had to convey that to somebody else it would be very difficult it's almost like the intersection of two half moons you see it's interesting someone else's interpretation but then it could also be interpreted as two profiles that are kind of um together i mean one's like an orange uh, straw and the other one's almost like a nude color yeah Um, and they're kind of intersected and it's just this huge sphere that partially covers the face and i'll see if i can find you the dress i mean it looked it looked fabulous all together on the day um, but yeah, getting it, getting it. And so with Chica, I will also send photos while it's in progress so that, you know, there's no shocks at the other, <laughs> at the other end either. What's been the biggest challenge that you've had, Melissa? And something that you just would not like to perhaps repeat. You don't have to mention names. 
an extraordinary dress. That actually looks like it's um, Dior. Well, it's not. It's a. It's a. It's a English designer called Roxander Lynch. I think it's a Lynchick. Is how she pronounces it. Who's relatively new on the scene, um, and uses a lot of colour, which, as we know in Melbourne, is rare for people to wear colour. But I guess if you're going to wear colour, spring spring carnival's the time to do it. What What's been your biggest challenge in terms of someone who's you just you've spent so much time on it? You don't mention names. Uh, I don't want to uh, have people ringing. But in terms of <laughs> something that you kind of think, God, this is going to kill me. This will be the last hat that I do. Was there anything that's You've been pushed uh, to the edge and you think... Well, I, I did make one last year on Derby Eve, which I started at midnight, finished at 4am and was picked up at 7am. Um, and that that was for a celebrity. It looked fantastic on the day. Uh, and I was, I was happy that I'd gone to the effort, but I was called in at the last minute because something had gone wrong with what had been organised. So sometimes you would hope that you might get called in earlier, but look, it's very nice to get called in to save the day. But it was mm. something um, that did really suit that particular person and the Derby occasion. And and well, how about the question? Because a lot of people say, I just can't wear hats. It doesn't suit me. I, I'm not a hat person. And my wife would fall into that category, although she does, <laughs> she does wear the occasional hat. Um, but what's your answer to that? Well, you see, I, I think it's a bit like singing. You know, having been a singer, lots of people say, oh, but I just can't hold a tune. And the thing is, look, you can, and I think everyone can wear a hat, but it's about finding the right hat for you. Um, but it's also about having the confidence to wear it. And a lot of people are like, oh, but I just, I'm not used to wearing something on my head. Or, I don't want the attention. I don't want the attention or um, it's going to affect my hair. Uh, but I think I think if you're wearing the right the right hat and you feel feel comfortable i i think you know that's not not an issue i did have um a very happy um customer this year who wasn't a hat person and she she basically just said melissa you've made it really easy for me love both of these i can i actually yeah. feel like i can wear something yeah. so it's more in the mind yeah i think so i think so and i think you know look maybe in the 50s and the 60s people wore hats to school and so maybe you were more used to wearing a hat just as a as a regular thing. But, um, yeah, I guess we've kind of lost that uh, wearing a hat as something every day when, look, it should be an everyday item. And especially in Australia. And especially in Australia. Melissa, look, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. And... um, Really love what you've been doing for many years and I don't get the opportunity to write on you very often <laughs> because uh, writing on fashion in Australia is also very limited. Yes. But um, it's just been a pleasure having you on the show and um, it's nice to know that um, you're still coming up with great ideas all these years later. Yeah, I mean, I should say as well, I guess my, my grandmother used to make a lot of hats but not anything like the hats that I would make. But I guess I also learnt a little technique from her that I've been able to adapt and always sort of bring in there somewhere or I feel like, you know, I've got my little angel looking over me. (laughs) So that's nice too. Um, Melissa Jackson, um, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Stephen. You've been with Stephen Crafty, um, Talking Design at RMIT University, and I've been speaking with Melissa Jackson, millionaire extraordinaire. So thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure.